Good afternoon. Please tell me in your Bibles, take a brief reading of scripture from Psalm 119. Psalm 119, I read verses 67 to 71. Psalm 119, 67 to 71. Bible reads, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day of worship. Thankful for your blessings this morning as we fare the defeat of our Savior. Being reminded of his glorious work on Calvary's cross and the subsequent resurrection that is the ground of our hope. And now, Lord, you brought us to this afternoon's feast. And we rely once more on your spirit, asking, O Lord, that you'll be pleased to abide with us for the session that we will have together, that your word may profit all of us, and that in the end we will know that you have been in our midst and blessed the going forth of your word into all our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'm hoping to bring to you here in this afternoon is a word of encouragement, a word that I had preached a couple of months back in our home church in Lagos. I actually didn't realize I was preaching this day on, on, only a few days ago, and it was on Thursday that I was told that I was scheduled to preach this afternoon. And I wondered what word would be fitting to bring to your ears. Some of the conversation that I've been privileged to have since I've been here has been wonderful. And it is stemming from those conversations, the fellowship with some of the brethren here and certain experiences that they have had that has led me on this course. At the time when I brought this word from Psalm 119 verse 71, I had just interacted with three people, not in our own local church, but in sister churches who had undergone various afflictions. Two of them had lost a baby, stillbirth. And then there was one who is in a very terrible marriage. And I recall that meeting with her and her submission that her issue wasn't about suffering. Her issue wasn't with affliction and God's um, choice to afflict his saints for the purpose that is clearly revealed in his word that we may persevere, that we may endure, that we may be mature saints. It was the longevity of the affliction that was her fear and her concern. How long would she be in this particular occasion was her question. And I know that in this congregation, whether now or in the past, that some of us have had experiences. Some of us have experienced loss. And some of us perhaps may be battling bad marriages or some affliction or the other. And I'm hoping that this word will be a balm to your soul. Before I start, let me ask you a question that I think we can deduce from our text. Our text is verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted. 
And this is a statement from the psalmist. David is um, believed to have written the psalm, even though we do not have that in a postscript. But many commentators believe that David is the one who has written all of 176 verses in this psalm. And the question is, what comes to your mind when you hear the word good? What comes to your mind when you hear the word good? Everybody can relate with that word. Everybody understands something of what that word means. It is dead. He says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Even little children understand what that word means. It's, a, it's an often used word. It's a word that we use to describe some of our experiences in life. And when we use that word, we're describing something that is pleasant. We're describing something that is delightful. We're describing something that we enjoy. We're describing something that is of benefit to us. That's what that word good connotes in our understanding. It's certainly not used to describe pain and suffering. And again, you think of the word and you know that the word is a qualitative one. By that we mean that it, is, it has a contrast because when you say something is good, on the flip side, you're saying that something is bad. And then it's also progressive because if you have good, you have better, and then you have best. So this is a very experiential word. To say that something is good, you are speaking from a standpoint of having enjoyed something, of having benefited from something or enjoyed your experience with someone. A wife can say that her husband is a good man, and there's a basis for which she makes that sort of statement. I've been interacting with folks back home and they ask, how is Nairobi? And I said, the weather is good. Because back home, the weather is humid. And I'm not saying that God's creation of the humid weather in Nigeria is bad. But we're saying here that the experience of mine is what has led me to say that this is good. Even though I'm not saying that the other is bad. So we understand the usage of the word when we say something is good. Indeed, you look at Psalm 34, verse 8, the same psalm, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And you see those senses employed as metaphors to describe the Lord as both delightful and one who is sweet. Taste. How do you taste the Lord? But he's speaking from a standpoint of experience that the Lord is indeed sweet and the Lord is delightful. And he's recommending him to others to taste and see and confirm that which he himself has experienced. But then we look at our text and what it reveals is not what we often associate with good. But the psalmist says, for me, it is good that I was afflicted. And you have to wonder what David is on about. You have to wonder whether David is in his right frame of mind. Who makes such utterances? Who refers to affliction and says that regarding this affliction, for me, where I'm concerned, it is good. And this is why I've titled the sermon, A Bold and Perplexing Confession. A Bold and Perplexing Confession. And by perplexing, I simply mean that it's baffling. It leaves you scratching your head wondering how a man will be afflicted and say that that affliction for himself is good. 
the people who experience pain, whether you refer to those that I cited earlier or some of you who might be going through some sorrowful, occasion, sorrowful issue or the other, some painful situation or the other, they do not describe those things as good. Nobody describes the loss of a child as good. Nobody describes some debilitating disease that they're and they're, they're enduring as good. Nobody describes a marriage where one spouse is, is recalcitrant as good. We know these experiences. Indeed, even persecution in the course of serving the Lord, we do not describe it as good. Unless, of course, they know something that we do not. Unless, of course, they know something that the world doesn't know. And it seems that this is the case with David. It seems that this is the case with the psalmist. That there's something he knows by virtue of that encounter that he has had and where the situation is not described for us that, he, that has led him on this path to say that it is good that he's, he's afflicted, that he may learn God's statutes. And so it's bold. It's a bold claim. It's a bold declaration. It's a, it's a bold confession. And at the same time, it is perplexing. At least it seems that way to me. Now, if you think of the words again closely, I don't think you will find this an easy assertion to make. And just think about those who are unspiritual. As Paul would describe them in Romans 8, the carnal-minded man, the unspiritual man, the one who is preoccupied with the here and now. And just think of him of how he will relate to such a description because if this world is all that you have, then you cannot say that it is good that you are afflicted. It's shocking. And it will be shocking to such people, confusing to the mind even. It doesn't make one bit of sense. And you have folks in churches who are alarmed when we preach on suffering, when we preach on affliction as something that the Lord grants. And perhaps I'm speaking to someone here this afternoon, somewhere who doesn't know the Lord and that situation that you are facing, that situation that you are undergoing and how you have interpreted it outside Scripture and how Scripture will have you see it, perhaps it's because you're not converted. Perhaps it's because you are unspiritual. And maybe that's why you have the view that you have regarding the affliction that you might be undergoing. But thankfully, the Lord hears if you call on him that you might be saved. And indeed, he will say it. But I think what still is the fact that true Christians, true Christians struggle, and perhaps because they are wrongly taught, struggle with making the assertion that the psalmist here makes. Because who in their right mind is saying that it is good for me that I have been afflicted? We're not surprised when we find Job's wife telling him to curse God and die. Almost in a split of a second, in less than a day, his entire livelihood was lost. All 10 children dead. And the man confesses, blessing the name of the Lord. And the Lord who has given has also taken. And it doesn't make sense to the wife. She just lost everything. And this is her husband's Admission. This is a husband's confession. And I suppose she must have asked herself, how is this a blessing? If you give, is it a blessing to take that which you have given 
And so she says, you should curse God and die. And you, we can multiply applications here regarding situations that we face and how it is incredulous to us to describe these situations as good. Now, one of the things that I think is interesting to note in David's confession, especially when you contrast it with what Job has said, and Job's confession is a wonderful confession, that he came out from his mother's womb naked and he will return in the same way that he came out. That's a true admission. But if you look at it, really, it's general revelation. It's anything that is something, though true, though revealed spiritually, is something that every single person will admit. That you come out from your mother's womb naked and you will return the same way. So it is true. But I think David goes a notch higher. Because David's confession goes beyond simply stating reality, simply stating that, yes, I have lost these things because in any case, I would depart from this world without them. No, David's own is a personal experience because he says that that experience is good. And you can tell that something is good because you have tasted it for yourself and you arrive, as I've said, to such a conclusion. And this is the case in our experience. Two people undergo a certain thing, similar thing, and one comes out saying that for me this is good, and the other person interprets it entirely different. He may whine and declare it a misfortune, but it's all stemming from our experience of that particular situation. So I want to consider briefly three points from this text of scripture. The first is the nature and source of affliction. And then secondly, the purpose or goal of affliction. And then thirdly, we'll consider our great encouragement in enduring affliction. The first, we want to consider the nature and the source of the affliction. Again, our passage does not give us any background or what the particular context is or what the particular situation is. And David is somebody that is no stranger to affliction. He has endured many an affliction. He has suffered at the hands of Saul. He has suffered at the hands of his own son. And so you read the Psalms and it's one affliction after another affliction that seems to characterize his life. And so he knows something of what that word means because he has experienced a great deal of it. And so it's not for us to really debate or bother ourselves about the specifics of the affliction, but to say affirmatively that he indeed endured affliction. He endured affliction. This is his admission to us as we read in the passage. And that should suffice for the moment. The question is, how did this affliction come about? Who is responsible for this affliction that David speaks of? And the answer is clear in our text. You read it again. He says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. And he's speaking of something that has happened to him, not something that he has inflicted on himself. He was afflicted. Who has afflicted him? You read, you read in verse 67 where he says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. 
The same thing being said, before I was afflicted, who afflicted him? Clearly, it is the one whose word he strayed from. And so we know the answer to that question, that the one who afflicted David is God himself. That David did not choose to afflict himself. David did not choose to have Saul stone him with a javelin. David did not choose to be unseated from his throne and be running in the wilderness by his sons or whatever situations he has faced. And we know the same. The mother who gives birth to a baby that is dead did not choose that. And the other things that happened in our own experience that we did not choose. Job did not choose to have the devil come and do what he did. It was God who afflicted David. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And it seems to me that he's having a conversation with the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord has been pleased to reveal this to us, for us to interact with. And you can see that it doesn't matter what the mediated means are. In, in, in this section, in verse 69, it is the arrogant, those who have forged a lie against him. This is the means in God's hand. But we go to the one who has orchestrated this affliction, and it is God. Now, I don't know about your context here, but this is something that is tough for many to swallow. Because people will just not attribute afflictions to the Lord. It is the devil, or it is one force or the other. And I'll give you a quick example. We had a brother die recently in our church in February. Dear, wonderful, staring young man returning from evening service, and then he was tired, he slept on the wheel, and he had an accident. And then one of the brothers who had posted something about the death of this brother had a friend reach out to him and say that this cannot be of God. This cannot be of God. That Christians have only two ways of dying. They either die at old age or they die in the mission field. And so that's food for thought. And perhaps some here of the same disposition. But we see here, even though the affliction is not stated, that it is God who has afflicted David. As a child of God, whatever it is you're experiencing, and I want you to underline and I want you to focus on the phrase child of God because that is the context in which we are speaking, that whatever you're experiencing, whatever affliction you're undergoing, it is of the Lord. The Lord is responsible for it. And he doesn't always choose to reveal why he afflicts you in that moment. Indeed, David, it looks like he is learning in hindsight as he looks back and considers the experience and after weighing everything and after seeing the outcome, he can now say that it is good. Perhaps he didn't say it in the moment while he was enduring the affliction. And maybe that's the case. But regardless, if we're afflicted as children of God, it is the Lord who afflicts us. It was the case with Job was the case with children of Israel for different reasons. One was to have him endure to the end. The other was because of their constant idolatry. It is God who afflicts. In verse 75, again, you can just read down. The psalmist writes, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That's clear as day. In faithfulness you have afflicted me. He doesn't attribute it 
to anyone. Just as Paul calls himself a prisoner of the Lord, even though he is chained by Roman soldiers, it is the Lord who grants this affliction. And so the child of God should not think that it is the devil that is responsible. The devil may be a means, and he often is in the Lord's hand to afflict us, as was the case with Job. But the one who afflicts ultimately, the child of God, is the Lord. And this should encourage us to no end. It should be a great source of hope to know that it is God doing the affliction, that we are not left to, to random forces or the forces of nature, but that it is God who is responsible for our affliction. And I think this is what we find as we read in Hebrews 12, I'm reading from verse 5, and I'm sure you know this passage. And the Bible reads, And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He may employ different means, but he disciplines. He may employ men, but he disciplines. It may be the devil, but he disciplines. It may be nature, but he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegit illegitimate children and not sons. And so the source of the affliction that David faced and that the children of the Lord faced, even in our day, in this church, in our churches all over the world, whether they're on the mission field, whether it's illnesses to the body, whether it's some besetting sin, whether it's persecution by those who hate the Lord Jesus Christ, who hate the gospel, it is the Lord who afflicts. And that should be grounds of hope. Now, obviously, I must add that we do not attribute second and third causes to God. That God is the ultimate cause. And so if that husband has the wife leaving him, and that wife is responsible, but God is the ultimate cause. I'm sure you've learned this as you've gone through your 1689 London Confession. Now God is the ultimate cause. He employs means and he permits various occasions for these afflictions to occur in our lives. And that's what David recognizes here when he says it is good for him that he has been afflicted. Secondly, we want to consider the purpose for the affliction. Why exactly does God afflict? So it's good that we know that God afflicts. And that's a very good starting point. That is a healthy starting point because we know the one with whom we have to do, the one with whom we have to deal with with. And David here says, as we read in our text, that I may learn your statutes. That I may learn your statutes. What benefit does David derive from the affliction that makes him say it is good? He says that I may learn your statutes. And then the question is, is this the only way we get to learn the statutes? of God? Is this the only means by which God would teach his children his statutes? 
He says the only way he keeps us from going astray. That's what we read in verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Clearly, there was a strain from his word. It's affliction or afflictions, the only way that God keeps his people in line. Now, I do not think so. That's not clearly stated here. But in this case, this is the means that the Lord employs to have his son to have his servant keep his statutes. And if it is because David went astray, then we're in trouble, aren't we? If it is because David went astray that God afflicts him, then it means that we live or we will be living under a perpetual banner of afflictions because all of us go astray. In one way or the other, we all go astray. In our thoughts, we go astray. In our words, we go astray. In our deeds, we go astray. Some of us have gone astray today. And so we can be thankful that it's not a direct consequence, indeed, of our actions, even though that's what we deserve, that the Lord afflicts. And you also have clear examples in Scripture where afflictions were poured out for other reasons besides going astray. In Romans chapter 5, 35, it is, the testing for the purpose of perseverance. In the case of Job, and we've already mentioned his name, indeed, you go back to the beginning and you read that Job is described as one who is blameless, one who is upright, one who is fearing God and turning away from evil. So you can't point to his character, what has been revealed, the testimony of his life, even from God himself, and say that he earned the affliction. No, there are other reasons for which God afflicts his saints. The most important thing is that whatever the reasons are, and I said he doesn't always reveal them to us, is that we learn his statutes. There is a purpose for which he afflicts his saints. And it's important that we learn this, that God may employ any means to teach us his word. And what's important is that we are willing to learn. And for David, it is clear that that was good enough because he said, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn. And David seems to have come to grasp with why God afflicted him. It means that David desired to learn the statutes of God. And so it wasn't complaint coming out from his mouth but thankfulness, gratitude, that God has employed this means to that which he himself desires to do. David has arrived at that point where his purpose is the same with God because God obviously desires that he keeps his statutes and David wants to keep his statutes. And if affliction is the means by which that will happen, then he praises the Lord. He submits himself to it and he can say that it is good. And I think this is important. This is important. Indeed, all of Christian life may be described as keeping the word of God. Verse 67, before I was afraid that I went astray, but now I keep your word. And you consider every single thing. Our being here on the Lord's day is because we are keeping his word. From worship to the most mundane of activities at home falls under the banner of keeping the word of God. And the child of God wants to keep the word of God. 
and where he senses himself straying or where he has strayed and the Lord uses affliction to bring him back, he delights in that because the purpose outweighs the means. It is more important that David keeps the word of God than that he is afflicted. Whatever means the Lord will employ, the Lord will give bounty. And as the means of keeping his word, he delights in it. If it is affliction, he delights in it. The purpose outweighs the means. And that is the psalmist. And that's what he's giving expression to here. In verse 92, Psalm 119 still, If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. He didn't say that he had been relieved of the affliction. It is because the law was his delight that he didn't perish in his affliction. The Lord Jesus Christ says that he who loves me keeps my commandments. So our love for the Lord flows out of his own love for us. And basically, if we prize that love, if we prize his love above all else, with the consequence, obviously, or with the evidence that we keep his word, it means that whatever means that he employs to stay in that love, to stay in that path, we embrace fully, we embrace delightfully. And so I think the lesson here for us is to be of that disposition to learn. David said that I may learn your statutes. And I think that and to disciples, that, that's the label that Christians are given. And a disciple is a student. He, it means that he has a master, one who teaches him. We are never not disciples. Nepal will learn contentment. That's what he says in his letter to the Philippians, that he has learned. In whatever state he is, whether he has much or he has little, he has learned to be content. Even the Lord Jesus Christ learned obedience by the things he suffered. And so it's important that we have that disposition to learn, that we consider why exactly has this happened. We don't want to be dismissive of these afflictions. We certainly do not want to be dismissive of God. We do not want to curse him and say, why would he grant me this? Why would he allow me this? Why would he take such and such a person away from me? Why would he take that job from me? Or whatever the affliction is, why would he allow this persecution come my way? Instead, we want to learn. And that's the lesson that David is presenting to us. Paul was a learner. An apostle he was, but he learned. To the day of his death, he learned. And we should learn. We should learn. And that's a great lesson for us. So we have the source of our affliction. It is the Lord. We have the purpose clearly revealed that we may learn his statutes, or that we may keep his word, that we may abide in his word. But then what's our great encouragement in enduring this affliction? What gave David confidence in saying what he said? In verse 68, we read, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And David sees that God is good. David says to God, you are good. The covenant-keeping God 
you are good. And if he is good, all that he does is good. And who is good but God? And that's what he recognizes. He is goodness personified. He epitomizes goodness. And David is saying that this affliction from your hand is good because you are good. You are good and do good. So even if it is affliction, it is good because he does good. He doesn't do bad. He doesn't do bad. And that's David's confession. And that's the child of God's confession in whatever situation he faces. In times of abasement, when we are bound, whether it's material resources, or even spiritually, God is good. His goodness does not waver. It is not conditioned on our situations. It does not change. It does not flicker. He is good. And the Lord said that to the rich young ruler who came to him, only God is good. And that's the source of David's confidence. The good God who does good, who does all things well. The ultimate goodness is found in what he did, what he did in his son. The ultimate goodness is found, displayed fully on the cross, where David's greater son will go to bear the sins of his people. Because you see, is David saying that God is good only in this moment? No, he has said you are good. He is describing an attribute of God. But where has he first experienced this goodness? Or concerning us, obviously, as people who are in the new covenant, where have we first experienced the goodness of God? Or what is the ultimate experience of the goodness of God. And I, agree, I think you agree with me that it is in having our sins forgiven. The blessed man that the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 32, whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And the ultimate goodness that any one of us here can experience is having our sins Forgiven. It's having our sins laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those transgressions forgiven, those sins covered. And you have to ask yourself, what beats that? What beats the forgiveness of sins? And this is the starting point for us in the journey, really, of our faith, in our journey as Christians. That you do not know that God is good until you have experienced his forgiveness that which is received in the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he arose, as we are remarking today on this Resurrection Sunday, that is how we know that God is good. And if he will give us his son, if he will have his son suffer, humiliated in the way that he was, what exactly will he do that you will not consider good? If the Lord would take you a rebel and translate you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, one who was afar off, now he brings near to himself through the blood of his son and he ropes you with the righteousness of his son and he calls you his son and you become joined heirs with his son 
and you've tasted the kindness of the Lord and you say he is good, what exactly will he do that will lead you to say that the Lord is not good? And so you see, for us, we know something that David didn't know. And David will speak, obviously, concerning what the Lord will do while not figuring everything out. But we live on the other side of the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can say that God indeed is good. And that is the ground of our hope. And that is where we draw encouragement from. That's where all our confidence must rest. So that in those times of trials, when they come, we remember that the Lord has given his son. The Lord has done the greatest. He has given the greatest gift that any of us could ask for. And so every other experience, whether it is painful to us and we're not dismissing the pain of these afflictions, we truly describe as good. He doesn't always reveal to us why he permits afflictions. Paul had his own. You read of it in 2 Corinthians. But then we can say with Paul that I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that that which I have entrusted to him, he is able to keep until that day. So our hope and our confidence and our great encouragement stems from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a great example. He's our savior. And when we speak of afflictions, who was afflicted like he was afflicted? Isn't that what we read in Isaiah 7 song in Isaiah 3 verse 7 that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its sharers, so he did not open his mouth. The Savior was afflicted. More than David ever could dream of, he was afflicted. And if you join all the afflictions of all the children of God that have lived and live currently, it will not even come close to the affliction that the Lord Jesus Christ endured. Because we can say of ourselves that we indeed merit these afflictions. We deserve to be afflicted. But we can't say the same of the Son. We can't say the same of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, we read that he was afflicted. To what end? Was he afflicted? Is it not because our sins were laid on him? Is that not what we read in, in, the, in the tragic scene, as you, as you, the distressing scene as you read in the Garden of Gethsemane where his sweats are like droplets of blood? He knew no sins. We heard here last Lord's Day. Yet he was afflicted. That cup of God's wrath, he drank, dregs and all, he drank to the full. He was afflicted. But he was the one person in the world that shouldn't have been afflicted. And this is the source of our hope. This is our great encouragement that the Lord Jesus Christ endured his afflictions for us. And it's for that reason that you and I can say, even in the worst trials that we face, that it is good that we are afflicted. Because we know the one who is doing the afflicting. Because we know that this affliction has a purpose. It is not purposeless. And we can say that it is good. In Hebrews, and we refer to some of the portions of that chapter, chapter 12, 
just backing up to verse 2, the writer exhorts the saints, saying to them, fixing your eyes or our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that's describing the afflictions of the Lord. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He had no sins, but yet he endured the cross. And we are exhorted, we are called, we are encouraged to fix our eyes on him. He is the prize that even in those afflictions, we look to him. We consider him who himself endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And it's from there that we draw strength. Jesus endured the hostility by sinners against himself for himself. Was it not because the Father laid our sins on him? Was it not because of you and I? And so it's important because what happens, and this often leads to depression and leads sometimes to a departure from the faith, is that our own afflictions trumps the affliction of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see less of our sins laid on him, the sins that took him to the cross. And we see more of those afflictions. They gain an outsized influence in our lives and they twist our growth and hinder our progress in our walk with the Lord. And so we're told to fix our eyes, not on the affliction, but on Jesus. David can say God is good because he is not fixated on that affliction. He is fixated on the one who is doing the afflicting. And it's in the same vein that we are urged to both fix our eyes on him and then to consider him. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners. Consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And what should we consider about him? Consider him who is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider him who would not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can bear. Consider him in his vine dressing role, pruning you so that you may bear much fruit. Consider him as the refiner and purifier, sitting to refine you like gold and silver so that you'll be rid of all dross, all sins, all remaining corruption in your life. Consider him who walks in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Consider him who is the shepherd of your soul, the one who ensures that you do not want or you do not lack, the one who makes you lie down beside still waters who restores your soul, who leads you even through the valley of the shadow of death. Consider him who invites all who are weary and all who are heavy laden to come to him and he has promised rest for them. Consider him and his desire that you be with him where he is. And this is the prayer in John 17 verse 24. He says to the Father that I desire that those whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Consider him who gives such a precious promise. Indeed, consider him who makes 
our afflictions momentary and light. As you know, Paul said, because it is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And consider him as the Lamb of God who takes away sins. Consider him in his kingly office as the one who rules over your soul, the one who holds the reins of your heart. Consider him in his prophetic office as the one who gives you divine instruction through his word, through the preaching of your pastors, that you may be well instructed even in the midst of that affliction. And consider him in his high priestly office as the one of whom it is said cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Indeed, still in his high priestly office, we read of him as the one who continually makes intercession for the saints. And consider him, that name Emmanuel, God with us, an ever-present help in time of need. Consider his words of comfort to his disciples. And when he says to them that he is preparing a place for them. And if it was not so, he would not tell them that. Consider him who said, I will never desert you. Nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And so we should consider the Lord Jesus Christ not considering our afflictions or not giving first place to our afflictions, but knowing that the Lord who is good and does good, intends good by that affliction that he has been pleased to bring your way. As Paul's statement again in Philippians 1 verse 29, that it is granted not only that you will believe, but that you will suffer even for his name's sake. And this is the source of our encouragement and the grounds of our hope and I pray that this word blesses your hearts. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for this word. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would toss all who are afflicted here to consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, in one way or the other, we're all afflicted. For we are one body. And you've said that we shall sorrow with those who sorrow, even as we rejoice with those who rejoice. And we're praying that something of the experience of David, and indeed beyond that, is what we will have. To understand why you grant the affliction that you grant, why you permit them in our lives, why you permit them in our churches. And ultimately, to find our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself endured afflictions. Not to learn your statutes because he knew the statutes, but to be the means by which we ourselves, coming into your, into your kingdom, will be such people who can say with David, it is good that you afflict me. We know that these things are tough to say when once marriage is wrecked, one's home is in disarray, one is in loss and one is in pain. But Lord, you are able to indeed cause us to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the midst of distance, beyond the dark clouds of our afflictions, to see the glimmers of hope that shines 
from the face of our Savior. And we desire very much that this would be the experience for all your people, especially those in the throes of some serious affliction. Help, O oh Lord, we pray. For the sake of your own name, help. For the sure establishment of this church, help. And for the witness of the gospel, even to the community around us, help. And we give you thanks asking these things in Jesus' name. Amen.